You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. This episode is another in our regular series, taking an in-depth look at the SMFM pregnancy meeting. To find out more about the meeting, go to www.smfm.org or go to the AJP homepage at www.tima.com forward slash AJP. Welcome to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today is another podcast in our special edition series taking place at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine 39th Annual Pregnancy Meeting. In this podcast, we will highlight some of the most exciting abstracts included in the late-breaking abstract session of the annual meeting. These are abstracts that are completed and submitted after the initial submissions for abstracts are completed and are meant to identify studies that are of specific interest to members of the society and were not completed at the time of the initial abstract submission dates. Two abstracts were presented on Thursday, February 14th, and one abstract presented on Friday, February 15th. The first late-breaking abstract was presented by Dr. Michael Varner on behalf of his co-authors, and entitled, Premature Infants Receiving Cord Milking or Delayed Cord Clamping, a Randomized Controlled Non-Inferiority Trial. The authors designed this study to try to determine if, in very preterm infants, umbilical cord milking might be an alternative to delayed cord clamping to provide additional blood to the premature neonates without delaying resuscitation. At this point, the understanding of umbilical cord milking resulting in increased neonatal hemoglobin and reducing transfusion risks in the premature infants has been established in multiple studies. However, there's limited safety data on the process of cord milking, where blood is actually manually milked four times by gentle milking of the umbilical cord from the placental side into the fetus. This study was a multinational, randomized, controlled, non-inferior trial enrolling preterm infants from 23 to 31 weeks gestational age. Infants were either randomized to umbilical cord milking, done four times, or delayed cord clamping of at least 60 seconds. They were stratified by mode of delivery and gestational age. The lower gestational age strata was 23 to 27 weeks gestational age, and the higher gestational age strata was 28 to 31 weeks gestational age. Of course, fetal anomalies, placental abruption, cord prolapse, transplacental incisions, high drops, accretas, monochorionic, multiple pregnancies, and any indication to prevent delayed cord clamping were exclusions. The primary outcome was a composite outcome that included severe intraventricular hemorrhage or death. Severe intraventricular hemorrhage was defined as grade 3 or higher. The goal was to enroll 750 patients per group to demonstrate a non-inferiority with a 1% non-inferiority margin based on a one-sided 95% confidence interval. The authors presented data on 474 infants enrolled from June 2017 through August 2018. 238 infants were randomized to delayed cord clamping, while 236 were randomized to umbilical cord milking. There were no differences in maternal delivery characteristics or maternal complications between either group. Delivery room and neonatal outcomes were essentially the same between the two groups. The time of cord clamping for delayed cord clamping was 56 seconds, and the time for umbilical cord milking to clamping was 21 seconds. 
76% of the infants cried or breathed before cord clamping in the delayed cord clamping compared to 52% in the umbilical cord milking group. There were no differences in the hemoglobin at four hours of life. In both groups, the median of 15 grams per deciliter was noted. At the time of interim assessment, the Data Safety Monitoring Board recommended stopping recruitment based on the primary outcome. Of infants randomized to delayed cord clamping, the primary outcome of death or development of severe IVH was found in 8% compared to 12% in those randomized to umbilical cord milking. This was not statistically significant. However, the incidence of severe interventricular hemorrhage was higher in the lower gestational age strata in the umbilical cord milking of 22 versus 4%, which was statistically significant. The author summarized that in extremely premature infants, there was an increased risk of severe IVH after exposure to umbilical cord milking. The author suggested that this may not be the optimal practice in infants delivered between 23 and 27 weeks gestational age and did not recommend umbilical cord milking in this group. The second late-breaking abstract on Thursday, February 14th, was presented by Anouk Pels on behalf of their co-authors entitled Maternal Sildenafil for Severe Early Onset Fetal Growth Restriction, the Dulch Multicenter Placebo-Controlled Double-Blind Strider Trial. The objectives of that study were to determine if phosphodiesterase-5 inhibitor sildenafil reduces the chance of perinatal mortality and morbidity in pregnancies complicated by severe early-onset fetal growth restriction. Fetal growth restriction was defined based on EFW and abdominal circumference criteria less than the 3rd to 5th percentile, all with abnormal umbilical artery dopplers defined as absent or reversed end diastolic flow. Pregnant women between 20 and 30 weeks gestational age with a singleton pregnancy defined as intrauterine fetal growth restriction were randomized to sildenafil 25 milligrams or placebo three times a day until delivery or 32 weeks gestation. Again, for this study, fetal growth restriction was defined as a fetus with abdominal circumference or estimated fetal weight below the 10th percentile and absent or reverse in diastolic flow in the umbilical artery on Doppler velocimetry. The primary outcome was a composite of fetal and neonatal mortality or major neonatal morbidity at the time of hospital discharge. 216 patients were randomized between January 2015 and July 2018. At that time, an interim analysis was performed by Data Safety Monitoring Board and recruitment was discontinued after 108 patients were allocated to sildenafil and 108 to placebo. Recruitment was discontinued over concern that benefit on the primary outcome was extremely unlikely and concerns that sildenafil could cause potential harm to the neonates. At the time of the interim analysis, the primary outcome occurred in 57% of patients allocated to sildenafil and in 52% of patients allocated to placebo. There was a non-significant trend towards more neonatal deaths in the sildenafil group, 26%, versus 15% in the placebo, which was associated with a higher number of cases with pulmonary hypertension 
mostly described as persistent pulmonary hypertension of the neonate, occurring in 18% of patients on sildenafil versus four neonates or 5.3% in the placebo arm. Retinopathy of prematurity requiring laser or surgical treatment was more frequent in the sildenafil arm at 13% compared to the placebo arm at 3%. Other maternal and secondary neonatal outcomes did not differ between the groups. The authors concluded that antenatal sildenafil administration compared to placebo did not reduce the chance of neonatal mortality or morbidity given the increased concern for the presence of pulmonary hypertension in the sildenafil group. The authors did state that conclusions about a causal relationship between sildenafil and adverse outcomes could not be inferred, but at this point did not recommend sildenafil as a therapeutic intervention in early onset growth restriction. The late-breaking abstract presented on Friday, February 15th was presented by Marion Knight on behalf of the Anode Collaborator Group. This abstract was entitled Prophylactic Antibiotics for the Prevention of Infection Following Operative Vaginal Delivery, the Anode Trial. The purpose of the Anode Trial was to compare the incidence of confirmed or suspected maternal infection in the first six weeks after operative vaginal delivery among women who have been randomized to receive single prophylactic antibiotic versus those who receive placebo. The study was a multi-center, randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial among women who had undergone an operative vaginal delivery at 36 weeks, zero days, or greater in gestation, with no indication for ongoing prescription of antibiotics in the postpartum period. The patients were randomized to receive a single intravenous dose of amoxicillin clavulinic acid, or placebo, following delivery and within the first six hours after delivery. The primary outcome was confirmed or suspected maternal infection within six weeks of delivery. Infection was defined as a new prescription of antibiotics for a presumed perineal wound-related infection, endometritis, or uterine infection, urinary tract infection with systemic features or other systemic infection, or systemic infection confirmed with a culture, or endometritis defined as U.S. CDC guidelines. For this study, 3,427 women were randomized, with 3,420 included in the primary intention-to-treat analysis. 1,715 patients were included in the antibiotic arm, and 1,705 women in the placebo group. The authors had anticipated a 4-5% to incidence of the primary outcome. However, in final analysis, the primary outcome rate was higher than anticipated, with an overall risk of infectious morbidity of 15.1% in the entire group. Women who received the IV single-dose antibiotic 0-6 to six hours after delivery with mean antibiotic administration at approximately 3 hours after delivery had a significantly lower rate of confirmed or suspected infection at 11.1% compared to women in the placebo group of 19.1%, the risk ratio of 0.58 with a confidence interval of 0.49 to 0.69. In this group, in both arms, nearly all women had some type of perineal laceration with a 70 to 80% rate of episiotomy in both groups. Two-thirds of the women were delivered by forceps operative delivery with one-third by vacuum delivery. The authors concluded that a single dose of prophylactic antibiotic following operative vaginal delivery 
is effective to prevent the primary outcome of confirmed or presumed maternal infection. The authors supported the use of routine prophylactic antibiotics at the time of operative vaginal delivery. In summary, the late-breaking abstract section of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine allowed authors of several randomized trials to present hot-off-the-presses, very informative studies that can continue to help shape our care of our patients. Thank you for joining in to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time.